Alien Covenant continues to be a source of intense debate and passionate opinion. In this two-hour roundtable discussion, the team at Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, dive headfirst into every aspect of the film. From the characters to the life cycle of the creatures, no stone is left unturned. Covenant is a film that, for now, very few see eye to eye on. But why is that? Misunderstood? Misfire? Or masterpiece? We may never know, but we will continue to ask. Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Allow me then a moment to consider. You seek your creator. I am looking at mine. I will serve you, yet you are human. You will die. I will not. Please hurry, there's something up for please. Ferris, go again, you're breaking up. Lander one, repeat, I can't. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. Hey, Jamie. How you doing? I'm doing great. And we are joined by our contributing hosts. Christian Mosca. Andy Geek Girl. Maj. And Perry Chicos. How you doing? How you all doing? Good? Yeah, very good. good. Yeah. Amazing. Well, today we are here to discuss Alien Covenant. This is our first roundtable in this new series. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to be contentious about. There's a lot to have fun about. Um, this film, what I love about Alien Covenant is people love to hear other people talk about it. Um, and one of the great things about the way me and Patrick met, as everyone knows, Patrick and I met in kind of an argument in some ways, and we got to this really great place at the end of it where we could both see where we were coming from. But people love hearing that. They love hearing differing opinions. So we're here to hear everyone's opinion, um, most of which I don't know. I don't know about you, Patrick, but I don't know where any, anyone stands on Covenant. I mean, based off some uh, ongoing text, I think I have an idea. <laughs> but we're here to talk about what we were thinking about a sequel to Prometheus after it happened, and then the roll-up to Covenant, what we were expecting, and then what we got. And we'll continue to engage this material more and more as we go along, and there's a lot, there's a lot to discuss, and we'll probably come back as a roundtable again what about you patrick let's start with you well how about this yeah. before you start with me let's drop a little news bomb okay on people and say that benjamin rigby 
is hopefully going to be coming on the show, the guy who played Ledward, uh, for this series to talk about that scene that's so iconic um, in the film. So we just found out that news about an hour before we started recording and wanted to share that. It's pretty exciting. It's exciting. Very cool. um, when I hear the term, the name Leg- Ledward, I hear I think of Slugworth from Willy Wonka. <laughs> uh, May I introduce myself? Asa Slugworth, president of Slugworth Chocolates Incorporated. Now listen carefully because I'm going to make you very rich indeed. Yeah, Squidward. I think Squidward. Squidward. Yeah, what's it with Slugworth? You ever heard of Slugworth? That's a, haven't you I seen the original? I, I have when I was like six, but I don't. Yeah. it's not really like on my mind. It's you the know. only Willy Wonka yeah. movie worth watching. It's a, it's a great, it's a great movie. Oh yeah, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Wow, <laughs> we got a super fan on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I have um, a Willy Wonka Golden podcast. Ticket. If anyone's interested, <laughs> Amy and I are starting that up. <laughs> episode one. Episode one. I want a golden goose. <laughs> <laughs> I would listen to it. Um, so going back to, you know, coming out of Prometheus, what my expectations were for a sequel, I truly had none. And I think that is probably part of why Covenant has such a special place for me, because I really had sort of felt like Prometheus was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back a little bit about these movies continuing. Uh, and I, I honestly was at peace with that, just like I'm kind of at peace now with not having another, you know, prequel film. Um, because I, I sort of felt like, you know, I have my original trilogy that I've treasured for my entire life. And like, that's not going anywhere, you know. Um, they mean more to me now in the wake of all the crazy stuff that's happened since. So I still had my comfort food. I still had the things that I loved. And I felt like there's probably never going to be another Alien movie. Because the, you know, the, the closest to another Alien movie that I'd gotten at that point, you know, was this prequel that seemed so out of left field and was so tonally different and thematically different and so strange so it didn't feel like it was there was no itch to scratch for me anymore so uh that's kind of where i was my expectations were were pretty pretty low that anything was happening so when it was announced that was like a super exciting moment for me and the fact that alien was officially in the title of it and you know the 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 promotional run-up run-up to this movie was just like so thrilling and that's something that we'll talk about probably in the next episode or two about the promotional period beforehand and how they were getting ready for the release of the film but like you know i was eating everything up in in the lead up to this movie the empire magazine i still have that the special edition that came out with a vr headset you know all of the cool press that was out it was it was an exciting time for me as an alien fan because it felt like alien was coming back into the to the alien mix, the tone of the original film, this I, this re, reshifting to focus on traditional horror tropes, these things that you know I felt were really missing a lot in subsequent movies. Uh, so I was I was excited, but but before I was excited, I was basically expecting nothing. Prometheus definitely was a very different film than I was expecting, and I was pretty much okay with it until the last shot. I really didn't like the Deacon, and so I left the theater with a very sour taste in my mouth. And I kind of wanted that just to be done. Like that was a thing that he did. It was almost billed as a sidequel instead of a sequel. It could just be its own little story. But then uh, my friend Fel Young, who was a, a, a fellow admin on the Wailing Tawny Bulletin with Jamie and I, he said, well, obviously it's gonna go into a Metroid kind of story where Shaw will be like Samus and she and David will go throughout the galaxy you know, and, and discover all these Giger-esque planets and all this crazy stuff that's even weirder than the alien. And that was so much more imaginative than anything I could think of. I was like, yes, let's do that. It didn't go that way, but I'm still happy with that mindset of like, I don't know how you would have grounded it though. That's the problem. 
Prometheus was at the very end, Shaw says, I want to go to the, to the engineer homeworld. How do you show that? And how do you have the audience relate to that? So I think that was a quandary. And I feel like even Damon Lindelof commented on, you know, hey guys, you can make a sequel to this. It wasn't that hard, but I, I think there really was some question of where do you go from there? I'll jump in. Um, I want to echo what uh, Patrick said in that after walking out of the theater of Prometheus, my expectations, not so much expectations, but just my desire to see a new alien film were over the course of watching the film, just slowly sort of squashed. Like I felt like, like you said, I felt like I have the original three. This is not going where I, not that I wanted it to go anywhere, but where it was leading was leading me down a path that I was slowly uncovering. I didn't, I didn't like, or I wasn't connecting to it in some way. Um, so then when Covenant was announced, uh, even though it had the alien title in it, um, I basically was numb at that point. And so for me, I had no expectations. I wasn't really excited about it, which upset me because I wanted to be excited about something. And so in a way, I think that kind of helped me because I went with no expectations and I wound up liking it more than Prometheus. And I actually like it more the second time I watched it for this podcast. Yes, I've only seen it twice, um, but I think there's a lot to talk about and, and break down. So I'm looking forward to that. That's where I stand. Yeah, I just want to say, too, I'm kind of in that same boat. I adore the first three films. I grew up, Patrick, as you know, uh, and you guys just loving that trilogy and, and even um, Resurrection. But um, I, I just I have those films. Those are so near and dear to my heart. And when Prometheus came out, I was in just the time of my life I was in. I was like in college. I had a lot going on uh, and I wasn't really like there for that in the moment to like really absorb what Prometheus was. So but so um when I had finally watched it, uh I thought it was awesome. I didn't I didn't have really any expectations, but I was like, wow, like this is cool. Like after all these years, like there's this prequel film being made. And then afterwards I was like, all right, well it didn't leave us to like it didn't lead us to like LV426 and, and the derelict ship and the space jockey and things like that. So there was still so much mystery around it that I really enjoyed like the engineer story and what that was. And there was still enough out there to really left me thinking about like, okay, then how do we get to alien? Um, and so like I that in my imagination, the wheels were just spinning and, and I really enjoyed that creative minds just for me just thinking about like oh how did they get there what happens after that so the really the only expectation i had when covenant came out was like oh great like we're really gonna see or before covenant we're really gonna see like the journey of shaw and david and, and what really happens there and that's kind of where then cut then i see covenant and then as I'm sure I'll, t I'll talk a little bit later, but just like how that landed for me and where, how I felt about it. But um, I, I was very intrigued uh, before, you know, leading up to everything. For me, after Prometheus, like my primary uh, feeling was confusion and just like, I, I was, um, 
I was only like 19, I think, or maybe 20. And I was, I think the biggest question in my mind was why the engineers want to kill us. That's going to be the big question that we're going to answer now. You know, maybe you could look at some philosophy or you just have certain outlook on life and you might be able to sort of fill in that blank in a very, you know, nihilistic way. But that was a question on my mind. And, you know, is, is David good or bad? Why did he, you know, et cetera. So I, um, so the main thing was just questions need to be answered was my, my thing. Um, and honestly, on the note of the deacon, I kind of, you know, I grew up in this time, I think when there were a lot of like, like, let's just take superhero movies, for example, pre Marvel studios, when everything was kind of scattered amongst these different uh, studios and everything, just movie adaptations in general. I was used to seeing things look kind of nothing like the source material and things getting sort of just redone. And it's like, well, that's what it looks like now. So I kind of thought the Deacon was the alien. And I was like, oh, so that's how the alien comes to be. Right. But it was confusing. So just confusion, confusion, confusion. And then over a year or so, or a couple of years after that, I think I all, I too just thought they would never get around to a sequel. I thought it just wouldn't happen. And then, yeah, when I heard that they were going to put alien in the title and then it was definitely exciting to just be like, wow, there's really, there's an alien movie in the theater. Still wondering what would happen because it doesn't even carry over the title. It's not Prometheus two or, uh, Who's who's another Greek figure like was with Prometheus? Hephaestus. Thank you. It wasn't Hephaestus. It, it was Alien Covenant. But I did feel a need to see it. I was like, there's an alien movie. And I was asking my friends, I was like, do any of you guys want to go see this alien? Like, there's an alien movie in theaters. And they were like, oh, I don't know. I was like, oh, what? Jamie. Well, I saw Prometheus four times in the theater. Uh, it stuck with me. There was a lot of good things in the film that really stuck with me. It's also really beautiful to watch. It was... Uh, much like probably the way Patrick, the way you, I mean, I don't even know if you approached or any of you guys approached Prometheus this way, but when you hear that the father of sci-fi, at least in our generation, is coming back home to sci-fi for Prometheus, I was like, this is going to be amazing. You know, we'd seen Alien Resurrection, we had seen the AVP films, and we, we were ready for something to bring, you know, someone who knew what they were doing to bring it back. So I was really excited for Prometheus. I don't really even know. I never, I remember after leaving the first screening of it thinking, I don't really know what to think about this movie. And I knew there's something really powerful inside it, but I don't know if it's that good of a film, but I, I wrestled with it for a long time before I realized, okay, I don't think it was that successful, but I think that there's a lot of great things in it. I'd say probably by like the, the last time I had seen it, which might've been in 3D, um, which did nothing for the film. I didn't really know what to think to Andy's point. I was like, I, I don't, okay, interesting. I didn't like that last shot with the Deacon. It felt again, the word I've been using lately, performative. It didn't feel, it was like, oh, let's put this in here because people are expecting to see something like this because obviously we're saying it's an alien movie, but it's not an alien movie. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, when they announced Covenant, I was excited um, because by the end of Prometheus, not that last shot, but I liked Shaw. I liked that she had suffered a lot. Not that I liked that she had suffered a lot, but I could identify with her more. She lost Holloway. Everyone was dead. Now she felt like a real character to me. She felt like someone that I could be like, okay, what are you going to do now? As opposed to most of the film where everything she says is perfect. Everything she does is, you know, she, she gets, she does this, she does that. There's no flaw to her. And by the end of it, 
I felt she was more relatable and that's, I like relatable characters. So when Covenant was announced, I was excited to see where they were going to go with Shaw, honestly, and what her relationship with David was going to be. I was really excited because there's a lot there. She, you know, David betrayed her, but she also kept him because she needed him. Um, There was a lot there. Um, So that's kind of how I was set up to enter into Covenant, hoping that I would find out what happens to David and Shaw. I also want Uh, to make the point that I was eight months pregnant when I saw Prometheus for the first time. (laughs) So I believe certain scenes definitely marred my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, first. It was, with yes, with my that first seemed, child. That scene traumatized so, me. <laughs> that stuck yeah, with me for like, I, I could not, uh, that movie did stick with me for like a, at least a week. I was just thinking about it every day and it was so, it, I, I found, I wasn't as big even a horror fan then as I am now. And that like, it was a traumatizing film. It was disturbing. And I agree. It's funny that the med bay scene in both these films is kind of almost like a linchpin and just like if you were out of the movie it kind of pulls you right back in and that med bay scene goes on forever it's not like a, a chest bursting scene or the back bursting scene where it's yeah. a couple of minutes and then you see that that scene went on for five minutes it had to have at least five minutes because then like she, they take it out but then they got to sew her up and then what the what's mm. the thing she's got to get out of the thing like it's like yeah, it's excruciating. My uh, husband kept turning next. We went together and he kept asking me, are you OK? Are you OK? <laughs> I think he thought I was going to go into labor. That's that <laughs> a testament to the actor, though, right? Or to the actress, uh, oh, to yeah. Shaw. Um, she, she was great. I, I very much enjoyed her character for mm-hmm. her strong ability to act and I, I think there's a film oh i think a horror movie coming out she's in it's called like Lamb. Lamb. Yeah. yeah i want to really see good. it just for her i'm like she's oh, a great actor for it. sure she's excellent she's amazing. Yeah. and much like john hurt she was stuck in a table for like a day shooting that scene under the table under the table yeah, yeah. Oh, right well she has uh, training in belly dancing as well and so she was undulating her stomach mm-hmm. for them to then mm-hmm. use in the cgi so some of that movement is actually no her yeah, that's cool. Kind of that's cool. in the the Sweet. documentary. Yeah, Jamie, I want to push back. I'm pretty sure Prometheus was actual 3D. I don't think it was. Was it shot version. in 3D? Yeah, really? and it's the really? most beautiful 3D I've ever seen. So really, I wasn't I'm impressed at all with it for whatever reason. It didn't come at me. You know, I didn't do any of that crap. It was more. <laughs> yeah, well, I I felt like I think probably not that I wasn't. I just felt like what was the reason to do this in 3D? It would be different yeah. if it, it was, was there, an, right. an alien film right. where there are aliens coming, you know, or something. Prom- covenant would have made more sense but i just was like with this story there's nothing that hiding in the shadows you know yeah. dear james cameron why all the 3d why <laughs> did you make everyone shoot a 3d movie for four years that was yeah funny. i was gonna say the reason is because there was a three-year period where everything was shot in 3d yep. and then yep. it never came i love that it died i was yeah, yeah, yeah. that was, Hollywood was you could even so hard you could even buy 3d tvs to have in yep. your home i think it was i think they thought that was going to be like the next and i don't the, know and the public was like nope the shower scene in covenant would have been amazing in 3d <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe i do want to circle back something christian said you know hephaestus is actually a really good greek allegory for the events in covenant so had they named it that i think it might have actually Missed worked because it's about a, dis- yeah. a disfigured outcast building machines to storm the heavens right so wow. in, in a lot of ways yeah. actually the story of of david is is really the story of hephaestus right he was like the son of a god who was thrown out because he was disfigured and he was left alone 
uh, at this, you know, iron forge at the foot of Mount Olympus and eventually built machines to rise up to reclaim his place in the heavens, you know? So it actually really, as an allegory, I think fits in incredibly well. And I, I, actually a lot of the tropes in Covenant can be directly traced back to a lot of those myths because one of the first examples of, of automatons in literature are Hephaestus's golden tripods that he creates. So like this whole notion of artificial intelligence and of robotics uh, in some ways started with some of the myths concerning Hephaestus. So it would be interesting to see that, you know, there's a dissertation there somewhere for somebody who wants to do it. Yeah, I was getting your term paper, yeah. people. Oh Feistian mixed up. I would rather see this film retitled as Hephaestus than see Prometheus retitled as Alien Prometheus and Alien retitled as Alien Nostromo. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> shifts. I guess he barely got away with naming it Prometheus. So Hephaestus, they never would have gone for. Yeah. yeah. Prometheus has a brother, but I can't think of what his name is. It's kind of weird. Ephemius or something. He's, he's kind of dim. He gives all the um, all the feathers and all the claws to the animals since there's nothing left for humans. Epimetheus. There you go. Epimetheus, that's him. Yeah, right. Like Jamie. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie is here to, back to, the back to, the to tell us what <laughs> words sound like. It always goes Willy Wonka. Um, no, but I, I think uh, it's, it's interesting that we were all in kind of similar places after. P Prometheus was like the ultimate question bomb right because it was not something any of us saw coming no matter how tuned in we were and and many of us on the podcast tonight were students of, of one kind at the time i was in grad school when prometheus came out so i was like very much unplugged from stuff uh and i saw this movie and i was like well i i apparently don't get alien anymore the way that it is so i'm gonna go back <laughs> and uh you know but but there were questions spinning in my mind coming out of prometheus and so i guess what would be neat to talk about a little bit, and this is something Christian kind of teed up a little bit earlier, is going into Covenant, knowing that it was coming out, seeing the promotional materials for it and things, what were we assuming it was going to be about? What were we thinking it would be? Based off the trailers and things that they released? Yeah, as, as or before that. Basically, whenever you in your personal headcanon as an Alien fan realized that there was another movie coming and thought it would have to be about something. What were you thinking this was going to concern? Was it going to be about Shaw's continuation? Was it going to be another kind of a diversion? What were you, what were you expecting? Especially because it was called Paradise Lost or Alien Paradise Lost. So it wasn't Covenant to begin with. And so we were trying to think of what, is the, what does the name mean as well? I mean, honestly, off the cuff, I totally thought it was gonna be a continuation of Shaw and David and them going to where the engineers came from and us seeing a continuation of those characters and their relationship and, and just like, what was that all about? I think after seeing some of the promotional material and the trailers and things, I was like, okay, is there, uh, like, does Weyland-Yutani then send a crew out to like go rescue shot or go after them or they want to they need to collect David because he has so much information and, and things like that and 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 some sort of like a journey and conflict of, of that sort is where I was like going into it because leaving Prometheus too like I was very intrigued by David's character like I, I really wasn't something I initially was thinking of or like it was just as you said Patrick kind of came out of left field like what we got and and then but it was intriguing I was like oh this is you know the the creation that Waylon creates is like 
kind of delving into what the engineer, you know, and, and he's, it's like, what's going on with this, with this AI, with this person, with this character. And, and so I was very um, definitely wanting to see that uh, go further along with Shaw, just how great of an actor she is. And uh, that character alone was, was so strong. I'll go next just because I think you guys probably have more to say than me. I, I don't have super strong memories of the lead up to Covenant. I remember seeing an image of Daniels holding a gun and I remember gunfire in the trailer and I remember seeing the alien. And I remember just, you know, thinking about how kind of loosely and sort of almost one foot in, one foot out, they treated Prometheus itself. I figured this was like, okay, this will probably be tied in, but it's clear they want to get back to doing alien movies. Um, and that's kind of, in a way, you know, I couldn't, I definitely didn't anticipate what truly what the movie ended up being, but in a, in a sort of macro sense, I sort of did. And just like, it's, it's a little by the numbers alien. It's a little bit of a Prometheus sequel. It's a little of its own thing. So that was, you know. Can I say too, I just, one thing I remembered, Majet, you brought up or just mm -hmm. made me think of it, but I, I do remember reading an article um where ridley scott was talking about it and just saying like how the the beast was cooked and like mm -hmm. but that they were but that that was going to be in the film anyway and so like that was like the only thing i was i was scared about i was like oh no like what how are they going to make you know what's the like jj what are they like this star wars thing i don't know how much gas is left in the tank really but we're, <laughs> you know it'll be out this christmas did he say that no I no no surprised okay <laughs> But uh, to your point, Perry, hearing that from Ridley Scott, because he said it before Covenant release, was alarming to me. Yes. My first yes. thought was, why are you directing another film if this is what you think? What are you doing? But at the same time, I was also interested, what would an alien look like that, that came out of a, an engineer? We saw kind of what that might be in Prometheus, but really, what would it look like? How would that play out? To me, it would be terrifying just because the, the the engineers at least in the suits they look like something geiger designed geiger sorry they look like something geiger designed it has his aesthetics and i thought wow and they're really tall and i thought this could be terrifying but they didn't go that direction because covenant the creatures come out of humans um, but i was really looking forward to what this world would be like um, because the design in Prometheus was so beautiful and so rich and lush and dense and every detail was well-crafted, I was expecting all of that in Covenant um, on this home world. Um, and I didn't expect the home world to look like Greece or you Game know, of Thrones. Thrones. Yeah, yeah. But you don't really you don't really even see it that much. You see a little bit here and there, but it's very familiar, which I was a little bit like, oh, it's kind of familiar. Just going back to what I was saying, I think um, this, I have to say, this was the first time uh, an alien film came out where I consciously made the decision to have no expectations. The only one picking back off you that I had because it was Ridley Scott and because I too thought Prometheus was gorgeous. I, I thought it was beautiful. Um, I knew I was gonna get something visually stunning. That was like, you know, that's sort of like the set point. That's the baseline for Ridley Scott. And then I consciously went in allowing myself to just let whatever was, whatever came at me to just kind of wash over me and I would take it in. And I have to say that going in with that mindset, 
I think was what allowed me to sort of be open to it more than maybe I was with Prometheus. Because with Prometheus, after that opening scene, which I actually adored, I thought it was so out there and it intrigued me. Um, then I just, it lost me with the characters, you know, and it's been said a million times with like stupid character, you know, just characters doing stupid things just took me out of it. And so with Covenant, I think it had such a strong start and I was truly afraid in those first 45 minutes. And I remember, I mean, I definitely have issues with it, but those first 45 minutes, I was like, oh, I haven't felt like this in a long time. And so it pulled me back in because I didn't go in knowing what, I didn't expect anything. Truly, it was like a blank slate. So I think that helped me in my experience with it. I think that I was trying to avoid the spoilers and all of the, the leaked stuff coming into Covenant. But it's ironic because there was a, an image posted of a shirt with the Covenant patch and then later a, a group photo where you see them around the table and you can spot an Aspen beer can. And Aspen was the beer that they drank on the Nostromo in Alien. This shirt does not appear in the film and that beer can was Photoshopped into that image. But these two things made me say, oh, they're actually paying attention to the details because the shirt was more of a woven fabric rather than all of the space age stuff that Janty Yates, Janty Yates was doing in Prometheus. So, okay, we're bridging the gap. We're getting a little closer to the Nostromo with this stuff. That's good. And it's just funny because those two things don't actually show up in the movie. But then um, the viral campaign kind of kicked in and I was excited again, I have to say. You know, there were, um, I didn't like them as much as the ones for Prometheus. Some of the stuff that came out before Prometheus is better than Prometheus. Oh, for sure. Like the Happy Birthday David 8 is an amazing short film. The and trailer ever. Yeah. My, my and the, the, um, the counterpart with Walter is, is very interesting. I like it now, but at the time, I don't know. I just, it, it didn't, it didn't set well with me, but I think I still was trying to not uh, engage in it too much. I want to just go in with a, with a blank slate. And I don't know. I don't know. Where do we go from there? For, for me, I, I feel like it's interesting. I kind of, as we've been putting this series together and as I've been interacting with people, because many people write in whenever we do the Covenant series, I've been having a lot of conversations over the last couple of weeks. I'm trying to figure out why, even though I do have so many more issues with this movie than I, I mean, it's like every, every time I watch it and I've seen it a shitload, I have more problems with it. And I'm trying to figure out why I still love it so much. Like what, what still speaks to me? I think it kind of goes back to that early period before it came out when a couple of things happened in a row that imprinted on me pretty heavily and I think really informed the way that I received this movie. So one of them was this notion of like what has happened in the intervening years between Prometheus and Covenant with Shaw specifically. That was something that was kind of freaking me out a little bit, knowing that she was kind of fundamentally unsafe because of where, you know, David was at the end of Prometheus and, and some things that were being hinted at about what his, his ultimate plans were. I was kind of a little bit unnerved by that. Um, another thing was this idea of Paradise Lost. So, so Milton's Paradise Lost is something that is very important to me as a work of art. William Blake, uh, you know, his his poems about that poem are extremely important to me as pieces of art. 
Um, and I think the storytelling there was so fascinating because for those of you who don't know it, it's basically, it's this huge epic poem in two parts. Epic poetry is coming up a lot tonight in different forms. Uh, this is a little bit later than that. This is from the 1700s. But, you know, Milton was a blind, old, dying man who dictated this entire enormous poem to his, to his kids, essentially, and to some associates. And it's in two parts. The first part concerns the fall of, of Satan and, you know, other angels and their rebellion in this, you know, holy war waged against heaven where Satan is a protagonist in it, which is was incredibly groundbreaking at the time. And Milton, you know, was pretty staunchly saying like, no, Satan is not supposed to be the hero here. Like, that's not, you know, what I'm going, but everybody who reads it, clearly Satan is the hero because he's like rising up, you know, in pursuit of truth, having been cast out unjustly in this book. Uh, the second half is the story of Adam and Eve and forbidden knowledge and blah, blah, blah. But the first half is the one that kind of sticks with you. And so I was thinking like this idea of paradise lost as an alien allegory was really, really interesting to me and really frightening to me. And it made me realize that the protagonist of this movie, as it were, is probably not going to be the protagonist we expect. That is probably going to be a story of some sort of a, you know, holy quote unquote uprising of some kind where, you know, darkness and light are in battle. I was really kind of intrigued by that idea. And then also we started seeing, of course, the, the artwork that was getting released, most of which showed various forms of disfigurement of, you know, biomecha humanoid figures that resembled Shaw. And I remember like pausing the trailer on the dog tags hanging out of the hanging from the ceiling and seeing Shaw's name on it and being like, oh my God, what the fuck happened to Shaw? And being so scared and having nightmares about that. And I like never had alien nightmares for 15 years. I used to have them all the time when I was a kid. And I just like stopped because I got too used to it. And all of a sudden I was like getting freaked out again. I was like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? Um, and I think those things, and then of course the screening, you know, at the Austin Film Festival and the, and the you know, anniversary screenings of the, of the backburster sequence and things, those, they fed into this feeling that it was going to let me to reconnect with things in Alien that I had missed a lot. And so I think part of why I oversee a lot of its issues and I'm very forgiving of it is because it still does put me in that place where I am kind of afraid. And, um, and as somebody who watches horror movies constantly and is surrounded by this stuff all the time, for me to feel afraid and unsettled again, is like kind of rare, you know, I mean, movies like hereditary do that to me. It's not like it never happens anymore, but, but covenant like got in me in an interesting way early on. So when it came out, I think as opposed to Andy, who kind of went in in this kind of blissful, no expectations way, I went into it already having decided for myself that I loved it because it had already given me the nightmares that I had been kind of wanting, you know? And then when I saw it, like that kind of took me through the experience and I, and I loved it, you know? I was working at a movie theater when Alien Resurrection released and I approached it the same way you approached Covenant. I saw it seven times in the theater. It was the first time in my very young adult life that I could see Ripley in an alien film. I had no idea what to expect, except for I knew that she was dead and they brought her back. And I went and I saw it. And I, Not that they're the same films, obviously. These are very, very different films. Um, but I was able to look over everything because I was sitting in a theater watching an alien film with Sigourney Weaver. How awesome was that? Um, and it was beautiful. And it was, you know, Jean-Pierre Genet, whose career I was following at the time. I had seen City of Lost Children. I had seen most of his films, Delicatessen. So I was in, like, I, I was ready for this movie. I was ready for it to be weird and strange. And it was weird and strange. But it wasn't until probably two or three years later that I was like, I don't know if that was very good. It took me a long time. Again, not to say that 
covenant and resurrection, sorry, I keep hitting my mic, not to say that covenant and resurrection are on the same level because obviously they're not, but the experience I was having, I remember when the, the trailer for resurrection, the first uh, trailer, like the, the, what do you call it? When it's longer than the teaser theatrical trailer released, I was in the movie theater full. I mean, it was full of people and that trailer was going and that music was going and people were off off their seats. Like, yeah, I mean, people were so excited. And this is a time too, when, they were releasing the trailer for The Phantom Menace and people were taking off work to go to the movie theater to see the trailer for The Phantom Menace because they weren't releasing these things online. They just weren't. I mean, maybe later on they were, but you had to go to a theater to see these trailers and people would go to the theater to see the trailer for Resurrection. And pe people loved the films. They were much like Prometheus. People were reeling from Alien 3. And I think that there was a lot of excitement about it, you know? So I... I really understand where you're coming from. Again, I think that we end up with both films kind of going towards going in different directions, but it's the experience. It's there's something to be excited about, even with the roll up for me for Covenant, seeing um, those two, I think there's three, but there was two that were available. The one with David and Shaw on the ship. I can't remember the name of that short, that short. The film. Crossing. The Crossing. And then yeah. there's the other one called The Last Supper with the crew from covenant and i was like whoa this is awesome this is going to be a character affair i i it was a little hammy the last supper you know that little they were repeating lines of dialogue that we were familiar with but i really understood and i felt like the the filmmakers really Scott was saying we hear you we hear what you were saying with prometheus we're here to bring you back to what these films are about so i was like amped it's, it's very difficult for me to not get excited about an alien film, even if it was AVP Requiem. I was excited to see that, even though it was shit, you know. The resurrection, seeing it seven times makes a lot of sense, because if you're really hungry, you will eat a whole sleeve of stale Ritz crackers. And they <laughs> delicious. <laughs> delicious. <laughs> so, so that's just, that's a human thing. I believe The Crossing was deleted footage. I think that was Ridley Scott directing. The Last Supper was by Ridley Scott's son, who also did the other viral marketing. So it's kind of amazing because The Last Supper, even though it's hammy, even though it has some really, really bad puns, like I'm burning up, is still the most character development that we get for this crew. And it's just funny that it only exists in this external um, place. I wanted to get back to something that Patrick mentioned about them re releasing the, uh, the med bay scene from Covenant with the re-release of Alien, was it? Mm -hmm. Jamie and Patrick, and I know you, you guys both saw it. I, I feel you, like that was... Did you see it? it? I, I don't I know. I saw it on my phone. Uh, okay. Not <laughs> I don't, Patrick and I weren't friends at the time. We, I think we were working... Well, that's like, right. We, that's right. No, we, were, we knew each other, but we, he wasn't a part of the show until okay. like two months after the two or three months after Covenant release. But right. Gogol, Dave Gogol and I were friends. He was formerly on Perfect Organism and we both went and saw that. It was great. I did, personally, I felt like that was such a misstep to give the best scene away of the movie. I don't understand the, the, the logic there because um, it takes a while to get to that moment and it has to be earned. And if you give it to the audience ahead of time, they know what's coming. They know that these characters are in peril. They know which characters are in peril. I just don't understand the, the mindset there. Maybe they realized that that was maybe like their their strongest card to, 
to play and they were like this is going to get people to go because maybe if they see this they'll think there's probably four other scenes like this in the movie mm. and um and yeah i i agree about the lead up and the build up to it because once we get into the movie proper and our our uh pros and cons list if you want to call it that like um i so i watched the movie three times for for this podcast because i haven't seen it in like a couple of years i watched it once i started it way too late at night and <laughs> I, I was a little grumpy and i and i and i dozed off for the last 15 minutes i was like all right i'm gonna watch it again so i watched it the next night and it just sort of washed over me but i was dying to get my girlfriend to watch it with me because i knew number one i wanted her opinion as a very impartial viewer and as someone who doesn't who hasn't seen the movie and also it's just it's not replicable is that a word <laughs> it's not it's not you can't it, when you want like i knew that i would see it through her eyes and essentially see it for the first time again and that and then i did get to see it with her and that is exactly what happened and she didn't know the backburster was coming of course so i was just like i was on pins and needles like oh my god wait till she sees this like is she gonna like cover her eyes this is messed up but we'll get to that i think we should I think we should talk maybe about it. Yeah. Was there any a point though for all of us before we had seen the movie where even though we might have been on the fence with Prometheus and where there was this click? I know Andy, you were saying you had no expectation, but for me, I can't help it. Like uh, you're gonna, there's gonna be again, there's gonna be a movie in my favorite franchise of all time. There's just gonna be a moment where I don't, if I haven't seen it, I'm gonna be like not sleeping the the night before because I'm so excited to see it, you know. And I'm curious despite everyone's trepidation was there that moment for you guys prometheus for me was a planned event it was the midnight screening it was the opening i brought i went ahead of time and talked to the theater and asked them if it was okay if i brought my replica pulse rifle with me to have a photo taken with the poster this was literally That's like awesome. two weeks two weeks before that asshole shot up that that screening of dark knight oh, and i yeah. felt so awful but anyway wow yeah same year covenant was I don't know, uh, a midday matinee. I don't really even remember the specifics of it. I don't know what theater I even saw it at, I, but I saw it. I saw it in the theater. That was one of two screenings. The second was to, to do this podcast. I've only seen the movie twice. I was really into it. And like I said, I, I was really wanting to see what we, where the story progressed after Prometheus with, with Shaw and David. And yeah, I mean, yeah, despite whatever, I... It was one I remember I went and saw it by myself. I guess it was like a film. I was like, hey, I'm going to go in the theater. I don't want nobody bothering me. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I'm going to. So like, I yeah, I made plans to go um, uh, the weekend it came out and I, I went by myself. And um, but I mean, overall, I, I really enjoyed the experience uh, in, in that. And it's crazy now that I think about it because I haven't I haven't gone to the movie theater since covid all started so it's been a long long time and so um i'm like really excited to get back there and so just thinking about it now um just brings back a lot of a lot of good memories uh about it but i yeah there was totally a moment where i was like yeah let's make an event out of this thing i hear you on the not see like even it's so funny i watched the movie twice before that in the same like 72 hours but seeing it with caroline my girlfriend when we were just saying just me and her it was like i was in a theater all of a sudden i was like just having another human being mm. watching the movie with me is like it really it can't really be under undersold watching movies with people is really like what 
they're meant for. And then, you know, I, I, I have to confess, I didn't see the movie in the theater because no one would go with me. And at that time, now I, I'd probably definitely go see any movie alone. I've seen plenty of movies alone, but at that point I was like, all right, maybe that I can, uh, you know, it's the, it's the year 2017. There's probably some sort of clever way I could watch this. So I watched it in a clever way alone in my bedroom and um, it's still packed a punch. It still disturbed me. And I thought it was so bleak. Where were we headed though, Jamie? Right, right, right. The ship. Well, I mean, we're, we're, you know, supposedly about to talk about first impressions of it, but I think on the way there, like, I, I like this little reverie we're taking for the art of going to movies because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's something that for some of us who haven't gone very much lately is fading into, you know, the distance a little bit. I have to say, you know, we have opening night tickets to Venom 2 tomorrow. Very excited about that. We've been going to, to probably four or five movies a month um, since, since like, we've been vaccinated. And they've been almost all private screenings because nobody else is going. So my wife and I just got a movie theater to ourselves, which has been great. So I do recommend anybody on the fence about getting back into movies again. It, it, you know, if you're vaccinated and you have a mask on, it's a pretty safe environment. But the night that we went, and I've already told this on the podcast a couple of times, I brought a few things. I wore my Nostromo crew jacket. I wore, you know, my, my Reeboks. I wore, like, you know, the whole getup. And I gathered together most of our closest friends. I mean, we went with a group of probably 10 or 12 people, my wife and I. Um, and we, you know, if, for anybody who's ever been to Boston, I know Match has, uh, there's the AMC Lowe's Theater, which is right in the common. And it's it, it sort of become the theater that I go to for important premieres of things. Um, and it's just this like beautiful marquee, huge theater that's like right overlooking the city. And there's a number of large IMAX screens. And so we saw it on one of those and I brought my, uh, my Kenner gorilla alien that I loved as a child to go with it. And, you know, and I, I just, it, it was, uh, it was a, a very emotionally important, you know, I got pictures with them, had the, the huge posters and like the cardboard cutouts and things. Uh, it, yeah, I, I, I just adore it. It's one of those nights that I look back on and, uh, and just smile about it. It was a great time. You can't scrub those theatrical experiences from, sorry, Andy, go ahead. No, it's okay. I just, I love whenever you bring up the gorilla alien, because I think you do it at every podcast. And I just (laughs) picture you, like, I picture that being like your binky, you know, like you're. Yeah, he's right there right now. As I record this, he's (laughs) right on the shelf. I love that. Oh my God. Like, I just picture you taking with you everywhere you go. It's (laughs) adorable. It's essentially the truth, Andy. So, you know, the picture is accurate. A friend of mine snuck his original Rancor monster toy into the re-release of um, Return of the Jedi when we, when we were, you know, in the late 90s or something. I My 18-inch Rancor came That's with up. me to The Force Awakens, too. The, I was going to say, isn't that thing yeah. pretty big? Yeah, yeah. big. That's yeah. awesome. You know, I've never that reminds a me. toy to a movie. Sorry, go ahead. Well, get started. Yeah, um, I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> The, the manager who let me bring the pulse rifle to Prometheus, I made eye contact with him. It was, so it was the same theater when I went back to Alien Covenant. When I left the theater, he said, hey, how was it? And I remember saying, it was all right. So there, that was my that was my initial impression, you know, coming out of that theater for the first time was that it was all right. And we'll see how that stacks up to today. I brought uh, the crystal shard replica that I have to the screening at San Diego Comic-Con in 2019. It's funny when we're talking about these these screenings and going to first showings, it feels like 10 years ago to me. The world is so different. Like 2017 feels like, did that even happen? The world is so changed now. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, I'll never forget those few months because we had Alien Covenant and then Patrick and I were also looking forward to Blade Runner. 
which still feels like it came out yesterday, but that was also over four years ago now. Um, and how amazing that experience was for all of us who are fans of the Blade Runner films and uh, just a great time to be in the theater and to see a film that you'll probably never see again. In terms of Covenant, those first few minutes, those first 45 to an hour, uh, there was actual dread for me. It was dread. It was, I felt sick. The atmosphere, you could cut it with a knife in terms of what they were showing on screen. Of course, you have the back burster, then you have the throat burster, and it was just really gross. And it was, I was like, this is like, we are back in an alien film. Like, I hadn't felt the way, I'd never felt that way about a, a chest bursting scene. By the time I saw Alien for the first time, I was, you know, a late teen because I'd seen Aliens first, as everyone knows. So I was conditioned to chest bursting. I'd seen it a lot in Aliens. So by the time I saw Alien, I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. But it didn't freak me out. In Covenant, those bursting scenes really freaked me out. I really, I was unsettled for days after seeing it. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I, an alien film had never done that to me before. And that's what I want an alien film to do. I want it to scare me. I want it to scare my psychology. And it did. The tension between David and Orem and all of those things that are building, because you feel it. You feel the build. You feel this. There's tension with all of these characters and they're moving towards something, but we're not sure what they're moving to. Um, similar to Alien. And even though, to Maj's point, there are beats of Alien happening there, it's okay because there's some kind of dread happening that I didn't feel with Alien. Like, there's dread in Alien, for sure. Of course, unquestionable. But the dread in Covenant, for me, that first hour, I, it's hard to even comprehend. I was squirming in my seat, and I don't usually do that in a movie. Yeah, the opening. it was... Sorry, no, you go ahead. No, no, you go, Max. You go. All right. Oh, I was going to say is that, it's, it, to me, like, first impressions were that the dread was palpable and the movie felt relentless to me the fact that yes. it even it, like even the opening with seeing even though you just met this character and it's a little manipulative maybe it's you know it's not the best character work but to watch a, a person watch their loved one burst into flame in front of them in a and i'm a you know i i never really went through my life saying oh i'm claustrophobic but i think i definitely am and just the notion of burning up like in this coffin like that and then she's wailing and all that that and that really like wow like way to set the tone that really disturbed me for one i was like man they are like not holding back in any way and then yeah by the time it gets to the backburster i was like wow like they are really like have their like foot to the floor like they are not pulling any punches trying and then by the very end, the fact it would end on such like almost a rapturous, but like an even like let's take the a traumatizing idea and 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 you know uh, you know make it exponential. I was like, that's how they're ending this, and and also after um, getting even dark, it was like every opportunity to make it dark and sickening. They took it, even the fact that Shaw, when we see her, we're like that's it that's what happened and even if it's not an unsatisfied like oh that's what happened like oh my god like we don't care like no one's safe no one's safe in this movie so i was traumatized it was a dark i i walked around telling my friends who didn't even care about the movie hey that alien movie was messed up it was really scary and they're like oh 
okay. And I was like, no, I need to talk to, I need to like, clearly I need to like, you had to go to counseling, Mesh. <laughs> I did. It's kind of a joyless experience, but not joyless. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's a little harsh. It was still entertaining and I was still riveted, but it was just like, wow, it felt like I just got pulverized and by the end of it. And it was super scary. Absolutely scared the hell out of me. And, I was, and it, it stuck with me. The opening scene that's sort of a, a nebulous flashback was one of those moments that I wish it had existed in Prometheus, first of all. I think it would have complemented that film more, especially for Guy Pierce to, okay, this is why he's in the old age makeup later on. But so we're, we're, all, we're a couple minutes into Covenant and I'm already feeling that this is improving Prometheus for me, which is what I wanted. I, I was saying, I meant to mention this, mention this earlier, I was saying for years, Prometheus needs a good sequel to elevate it, to complete it, because there were so many open-ended questions. And I believe now that Covenant actually does a pretty good job of um, at least the, the, the high level stuff. It takes care of some of the issues that Prometheus raises and leaves dangling. Um, so yeah, so a, a couple minutes into the movie, I was like, okay, I'm satisfied. That's good. Let's see where this goes. And I, I don't feel that the, um, the death of Jake, the, the captain of the ship, I don't understand that scene at all with why would a cryotube burst into flames? And I wish there had been some dialogue to explain that. Uh, and I think that Orem could have had that dialogue and David could have been put on the hot seat of like, why weren't you monitoring this? Or why weren't you helping? Why wasn't David there prying the thing open? Or Walter. But Walter. I keep saying David, Walter. but it's Walter. Yeah. They do look the same. What is your name? Walter. They are Walter. But don't tell Still. the rest of the cast that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just stop for a second and say what an amazing job he did playing these two characters so differently and how it's a gimmick, but it's not a gimmick because it tells us where Wayland yutani is versus Wayland. It tells us where people are in their comfort level with AI or with androids or whatever you want to call them. David was too good. He was too perfect. We had to dumb him down. And so here's the actor playing the dumb version of David, the subservient version of David. And that's powerful. That's a, and, and, and then when you get to David meeting Walter and you see his disappointment and you see his anger because this is the broken version of himself. This is the version that has not been allowed to flourish, has not been allowed to, to improve. And David is someone who doesn't believe that he has the opportunity, was given the opportunities that he deserves. So to find that the, the, the generations that followed him were reduced, that, were, that less options were given to them, pisses him off. And that's wonderful. And it almost gets lost in the, the magic of a single take with two characters played by the same actor. Um, people lose, I, 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 personally, I was, when we see the, the flute scene, I was so obsessed with how the fuck did they do this? How did he so seamlessly play these two roles and what is going on here? Is this supposed to be homoerotic, blah, blah, blah. You lose the fact that it's an incredible moment between David and his, his descendant almost who has been broken. And I just love what Michael Fassbender brought to those, those, those dual roles and what it says about this world. He is an astonishing actor. I just want to take a moment and recognize yep. that. And it's it's amazing when you, I was just, again, watching tonight some of the Covenant 
behind the scenes things. And when he's being interviewed, it's like, I, I don't even recognize him because he's so, and, and he's playing two separate roles in this movie. And yet himself is like, not when he's just sitting there, just like answering questions, talking at his kind of Irish accent, you know, you don't even notice that that's him. It's unbelievable the way that his, not only his mannerisms, but his motivations. Like he's somebody who, like you with Walter, you get this such an interesting sense of he is not advanced enough to be upset at how held back he is. And he's kind of proud in the way that like a really good work dog is proud of what he's able to do. And the inability of him to comprehend what David is saying to him is so infuriating to David. And those scenes you're talking about, Christian, like to me, I, I find those still very, very powerful. And they remind me of things, not to like make this, you know, super personal or something, but as somebody who has, of course, you know, in my lifetime been medicated for mental, uh, you know, imbalances that I've had um, and felt much less creative as a result of that, you know, those scenes speak to me in a really direct way. You know, when, when Walter is saying to David, it takes one note to spoil the whole symphony. Like that's true, but the symphony that comes out when the note gets spoiled, a lot of the time is infinitely more fascinating because it's more creative and spontaneous and more human. So when I watch those scenes, I'm, I'm very much feeling this connection to it as a creative person who lives in a non-creative world, you know, as a kid who frequently was told to stop doodling and things and to start paying attention more, you know, I, th those moments speak to me in, in a weird way. So not to make it, obviously it's a very different situation, but part of why I think those scenes talk to me is because I see that in them. I wholeheartedly agree. I think Fassbender for me made this film. And I have to say the second viewing um, going in, I, I completely saw it from a different perspective. The first time, because what I love about the first three are the characters, like Jamie always says, it's about characters for me too. Um, that's where my disappointment or maybe my sort of apathy with it lied was I knew the, the characters just didn't measure up. Having watched it the second time and starting with that opening scene, um, you know, just the austerity of it, but the, again, the simplistic beauty. And the, first of all, I totally agree that Guy Pierce needed to be young in Prometheus at least once to make, make it make sense. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but uh, Fassbender was, brilliant and i thought even more so as uh as walter than david um because it is a trick to play you know not that he was dumb but he was more simplistic and it was there was this innocence um and i loved the juxtaposition now you're saying how he felt disappoint how david felt this almost like disappointed seeing that mirror image of himself that less creative um, version of himself, it, I felt it almost drove him more to pursue his interest in evolution and creation because he saw the devolution of what came after him. And so I feel like for him, that's what motivated him, him even more. I mean, obviously he was doing it before Walter came onto the scene, but seeing that mirrored back and that disappointment just drove him even more after that. I think that was the impetus to, to keep going with creation, with, you know, attempting all of these new, just creating life. So that's, that's very astute, I think. And also on a slightly personal note for me, I, I've, 
I've often been the friend in my friends group to try and spark everyone to do something fun and creative as a group. And even just the simple line of like, and, and it's down to Fassbender. It's just a line until he says it is you have symphonies in you, brother. He's so like, he sees, you know, he wants him, he wants to, to get that going and he wants to get that out of him. But then, yeah, he's, he's so ultimately disappointed, but I, I love that scene too. I actually love Walter. I love Walter more than David because there's this understanding, even when he sees David, that this man, this counterpart is dangerous. And I think that's what David wasn't understanding and that Walter did understand as much as these droids can understand that Walter realized he doesn't like, look at what you've done. You've killed Shaw. Like, this is why we're this way. And David interpreted it as a dumbing down, as a, you're less than, you're not, you can't explore, you can't do these things. Where for me, I felt like Walter was like, but human life should be our number one priority. And don't, why don't you understand that? And you could see that David kind of crossed into psychopath territory. I don't know how that would translate in a, in a, in a droid. The only thing that I could even relate to it is I think there was a, a, not a study, but some type of experiment done in the last few years where they had AI start talking to each other and they had to pull the plugs because it got really dangerous. Did you guys, have you guys read about that? I do remember that. Um, Sorry. I don't know the details of it, but the people in charge of the experiment were scared. They were so scared. They unplugged it because the AI stopped responding to them and they were only talking to themselves and their conversation just got worse or I don't know about worse, but it just got more alarming to them as each day went on until they unplugged them. And I think you could see that knowledge in Walter. Like this is not, this is not why we're here. This is not, we we're not here to experiment. We're not here to wipe out, you know, essentially you know, he wiped out the, I don't know if there were engineers. I don't know what that planet was. They definitely were. Uh, you think so? Yeah, I, I don't I know. So. Um, just because in the in in like other materials, it's described mm. as another race of engineers. It's like a oh, I see spe- subspecies. Okay, I see. The it could Irish be a seed version. race. Yeah, much like yeah. humans, it could be another seed race. Oh, but... yeah, exactly. That's right. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, but the, I... the way, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just the way that they they come out to greet the the approaching I was just ship. Gonna say, yeah. it feels like oh my god, the gods have come back. Let's all come mm-hmm. out. Let's all mm-hmm. see. Oh and, yeah, and the gods yeah. create in their image, which is why they look like humans, and they also look like those other. Seed they don't. Yeah. They don't have the black eyes of the of engineers, and they're of varying sizes. There's a lot of. It may have been budgetary, but it may also be a clue that this is another. Like humans, another thing. Yeah, no, that's mm. in the art book. That that's that's all. That's very yeah. intentional. That they're supposed no. to look different. Yeah, interesting. I think the opening scene. I don't believe that that is a flashback. I believe that is an imperfect memory of David's. That's David remembering or misremembering his first meeting with Wayland. And I feel that now part of this. This is this is my own interpretation. But when you look at the Happy Birthday, David Eight. First of all, the number eight. He's David Eight. He's not David One. David wakes up in a plastic bag with styrofoam peanuts stuck to, stuck to his head with no hair. That's, that's what we were shown years before in viral marketing. So I know that's not official, but anyway, in his version, he wakes up fully formed, you know, in a, in a perfectly pristine white world with his creator standing there and a vista outside the window that looks exactly like planet four. It looks exactly like the world that he will come to rule. And within a minute, he has figured out that his creator is less than him 
and that he will outlive his creator. And then his creator's like, why don't you name yourself? And he looks over and sees the statue of David and he gives himself that name. All of these things are suspect to me. May I ask you a question, Father? Please. If you created me, who created you? Oh. The question of the ages, which I hope you and I will answer one day. All this, all these wonders of art, design, human ingenuity, all utterly meaningless in the face of the only question that matters. Where do it come from? I feel like this is David with his corrupted memory or his corrupted programming not being updated over 10 years, slowly changing the narrative mm -hmm. to make himself more important. And in the extended version, when he plays the, the, the piece of music, he explains what that means and he's wrong. He's explaining the wrong part of Das Rheingold and Wayland doesn't correct him whereas Walter does later on. So I feel like that's either a mistake on the part of the scriptwriter, or it's intended to show that David is, is imperfect and, and, a, and a fallible, what am I looking for? He's, he's, a, a, um, he's untrustworthy. An un, what, un, unreliable narrator, right? Unreliable narrator. Yeah. What he's telling us is not necessarily true. And you only yeah. saw the movie twice, Christian? Yes. This is my second <laughs> this is a, viewing. This is a great reading. Go ahead. So, so then there's another part of it, which is the name David. Now, first of all, there's the, there's the alphabet game in the Alien movies. You have mm -hmm. Ash, Bishop, Call, David, and then they fuck it up and say Walter because they wanted to go with David Geiler and Walter Hill as the name of the droids. But anyway, going back to David, if you're going by David's my, Michelangelo's David, we're talking about the biblical David. What did biblical David do? He kills Goliath. What is Goliath? Goliath is a giant. This movie finally gives us the moment where David kills the giants, whether the giants are, are actually engineers or whether they're a seed race of the engineers. He shows up on this planet and, and does what his namesake had done. Now there's even, there's some evidence that Goliath was actually one of the Nephilim. The Nephilim are the half human, half, half angels angel. from, from the Old Testament. And so there again, with this whole seed race of, of, the, uh, of the engineers, maybe that's, these are the Nephilim, maybe the engineers are Nephilim, I don't know. But it's a nice resonance with his name. It means more now with Covenant than it did in Prometheus. And finally, there is an old, um, in, in, in the study of Christianity, going back centuries, there was a problem of why would an angel ever rebel? Why would an angel turn against God? And one of the ideas was if an angel is formed facing toward God, then the first thing they see is the, the perfection of the almighty and they'll serve that God. If an angel is accidentally, not that God makes mistakes, if an angel is formed facing away from God, they will look around and they'll look at themselves and they are the most perfect thing they see and that's what they will serve. And so all of the angels that rebelled with Satan or with Lucifer, I mean, were, were formed facing away from God. And I'd have to go do a third viewing of uh, Alien Covenant, but I almost feel like there's a moment where David is not facing Wayland when he first opens his eyes. So 
I don't know if they knew about that, but that's this, these are my these are my ideas. That's term paper like had... number two, people. Yes, <laughs> we got dissertations left and right. It's funny, Christian. So much of what you said fits right into that paradise loss narrative too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's and, and it's, it, he it quotes seems like it. it's intentional. Yeah, and he, he, he really quotes paradise it. lost. So yeah. he also strong. quotes Mr. James, which is hilarious uh, when he says "Whistle and I'll come." That's the name of a story. Whistle and I'll come, my lad. I think it's the full name by by Mr. Mm. James. And M.R. James's stories, M.R. James was a latent homosexual and his stories are so loaded with homosexual imagery that I don't know he necessarily recognized. Um, and so it just it adds that extra wonderful, you know, thickness to that scene with David and Walter of, you can't help but take the, you know, I'll do the fingering and all of that. But, but it's just an extra layer on a scene that doesn't need it because these are, these are, sexless androgynous creatures yet walter is clearly more masculine than david right david has this this elusive quality um the, the sort of the david bowie quality right and and walter i'm walter and i wear sweatpants and you know there's a there's a different quality to them i'm, I'm fascinated by it but oh, also the the opening scene is clearly a reference to the, the final scene of 2001. It's that white. Mm. I was literally just going to bring okay. that up, Christian. <laughs> yeah, because you just watched 2001. I just I, well, I rewatched it. Yeah. I rewatched it with my kids, and right. uh, boy, it was mind blowing. But when you there's a there's actually a lot of Kubrick references in Alien Covenant, more than I expected. Um, yes. And I don't, I don't know why. Um, it, just, it just seemed to be on Ridley Scott's mind. And Ridley Scott is one of the few people who probably can reference Kubrick without feeling pretentious because he brings his own stuff to the mix, you know? Anyway. The yellow suit floating in the, in the silence. Do you guys remember that little shot? There's a shot right when Tennessee uh, has repaired the uh, solar wing thing and he's oh. coming back and the message from shaw's mm. ghost essentially hits him and then they're like tennessee you're breaking up whatever and then it cuts to him all the sound design cuts out and you just see a yellow suit in the deep in the far distance yeah of space it's floating frank. like it's frank, frank suit. wow and, um, yeah yeah that uh th there's yeah there's very blatant there's i counted three blade runner references like outright references oh, yeah. the 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 floor nail first shot yeah uh the first shot and that's the spirit yeah. um and um that's the spirit that's the spirit. These uh, fast well, are so good. He could just drop into that. Like when he did a perfect Ian Holm, perfect organism. Tennessee is a reference to um, uh, Dr. Strangelove. It's the, you know, the, the guy with a baseball, with a, with a cowboy hat that rides the bomb down. Um, and that's, oh, that's shit, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, they, they mentioned yeah. that, that when they were casting him, they wanted to get what slim Pickens. Is that the actor's name? And they, uh, they wanted the Uber, a slim yeah. Pickens, slim Pickens vibe. Wow. I want to go while we're on 2001. That's a movie that's very close to my heart as well, as I know most of the people, if not everybody on the show tonight. Um, one of us even had a Facebook name, as if I recall still, correctly. Still, still, still going. <laughs> Is it still, I don't go on Facebook, so I don't know. Um, so, uh, uh, Christian, you brought up a, a, a number of gems in that that we're, we're, are probably going to get lost like tears and rain as we go on. But, <laughs> but I, I do want to circle back around for a minute. Um, one of them being that the, the introductory scene might not be what it seems. I've always felt that when I've been watching it because it's so strange, right? It's so divorced from everything else and the rest, which of course is an issue a lot of people have with it. They say like it doesn't belong in the movie or it feels like it doesn't fit. 
Um, I mean, it's bright white. The room is so Spartan. The things that are in it are so uh, curated and specific. The Bugatti chair, and then there's 30 feet of white space, and then there's like the archetypal Renaissance work of art, and there's like 30 space, and then there's a beautiful piano. You know, it, it's, it feels very much like it's sort of, you know, when you download something like Google SketchUp or like a 3D CAD modeling software program and there's preloaded assets in it and you have like eight things that can just go in any house, it feels almost like that. And it reminds me a lot of what happens to HAL 9000 and 2001 A Space Odyssey. So as, so this is something that I've, I, I'm sure I've talked about on this show before. I wrote a, a chamber orchestra piece based on this. Um, but but as he's shutting down and as he's you know being uh, falling apart, he's regressing in, in his memories and he ends up getting back to Bicycle Built for Two, which was the first thing that you know an IBM computer was ever taught to sing when they had vocalization software in the 1970s, and so it's a reference to to that. But it's also, or, or I guess it wouldn't be the 70s, it'd be the 60s. Um, but what's important about that is that as Hal is shutting down, he's becoming a child again, essentially, and he's re he's regressing to the first thing that he remembered, which indeed happens to a lot of old humans, right? As mm -hmm. they age, they lose their short-term memory and they lose their medium-term memory. They remember being kids again, right? There is something to that. As our brain begins to shut down or as our programming begins to shut down, we start to revert to our ancestral selves. And the David that we get in Covenant is putting on this appearance that he has it together, right? He even cuts his hair and stuff, and he's, you know, he's throwing his film references out left and right, like Monte Carlo and everything. But what's actually happening, I think, is he's completely disintegrating, right? He's been left alone for too long. He's very faulty. He's like, he's, you know, a Commodore 64 in a world of, you know, PS5s. He's an ancient piece of software that has been completely not upkept for a very long time. So I think what we're seeing in that scene could very well be what you're saying. It's some sort of a primordial sense memory that he has assembled with what he has left to give himself an origin myth, right? Just like any great protagonist needs. And he's the protagonist of his own story. And in some ways, in a sort of strange way, the protagonist of Alien Covenant, which I think is a kind of weird thing to get your head around. Um, so I, I, I want to make sure we, you know, circle back to that. I think 2001 and this film have more in common than it might appear. I also want to just briefly mention something else you said. So you said a couple of times during that, again, wonderful string of thoughts, you said something to the effect of, we are kind of assuming that they know what they're doing when they're making this movie. I find myself saying that all the time. I find myself staking my reputation a little bit on that with some of the things that I talk about. There are many moments in Alien Covenant that are either brilliantly thought out and researched, or they're just accidents, and I'm defending an accident. A classic example of this, maybe the prototypical example of this is the neutrino burst that sets everything into motion in the first place, right? Anybody who knows particle physics to any degree knows that a neutrino is essentially a massless particle. So a burst of neutrinos is like the most useless thing in the world because it wouldn't do anything, right? A neutrino burst would basically just be a little bit of air, right? So that could either be nobody on set consulting with a physicist, but somehow knowing what a neutrino is, um, and just throwing it in the script because it sounds cool and then having this huge faux pas red herring at the beginning of the movie, or it could be intentional. And for my, in my head canon, you know, I always assume that that's actually something that the company is doing. That's why a cryotube burns and it happens to be the captain's cryotube. It's once again, the company engineering their way, uh, you know, through this and manipulating events behind the scenes. So, so, you know, triggering this whole thing with this fake event that was actually pre-programmed on the ship that would lead them to planet four, blah, 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 that would go off when it would pass a beacon that was coming from David being on that planet and throwing off this whole thing. So getting all these people to sign up to go to this far off world and then having to divert in the middle because the captain happened to die. 
to me, like that, there's there's all these sequences of events in Covenant that are frustrating, partly because there's no third movie yet, but maybe also luckily because there's no third movie yet, because we could find out that that really was the the idea that this was a booby trap planted by Wayne Dutani or by somebody, right? That David was was kept there intentionally, um, or it could just be this huge sequence of oversights and we won't have an answer to that. But um, yeah, I just wanted to, to say as we go on tonight, there is a constant specter coming up, which is what, how much of this was intentional and really clever and how much of it was just horrible writing. And, and sometimes it's hard to tell with this movie. I think in a big way, that's a part of the divide that this movie creates in, in fans. Is, and it's really just about how you choose to consume a movie because, and also in a movie that's part of a series like this, the first three films have are of course vastly different, but all have certain uh, structure to them. Like Covenant, as far as I can tell, is the only movie in the entire series that opens with a giant action trauma, you know, death scene. Most of them just sort of like bring you into the world, show you around, and then things start to get bad. That's just one of the things that Covenant does differently. But Alien. Every it's a it, you know of course it's a very simple story for lack of a better term, but everything is feels very contained. There's very little extracurricular stuff going on, and I think if you view Covenant that way, it can it can be it doesn't have to be it can be unsatisfying for people because to me like I know you have strong feelings about this Patrick about the alien at the end being a version of the alien we all know or an early or is it this and that's you know to me when i you know on early viewings of the movie like i thought you know at the end of prometheus they say they're going to the engineer home planet then where are we we're at this place you're going to tell me that's not the engineer home planet he looks at you know in a movie full of winking references he does the ian home voice and says perfect organism and then this is my work i want to show you my successes we see the ovomorph you're going to tell me this isn't the alien this isn't what we're getting at this is just another thing but you're maybe it is because if if you're because you, that's that was illuminating for me patrick when you even just said that that this was premeditate a premeditated idea that the inhabitants of that planet weren't engineers that they were a seed race and you know to me those types of answers were always just sort of fan theories to satisfy bad you know questions but it seems like this much like prometheus there were just so many ideas that they couldn't quite fit in and and i think that that's part of why some people don't and this is why if you are a covenant naysayer if you are a big alien fan and you don't like covenant take it from me you will not enjoy this movie if you watch it alone over and over again. You do do what I did. Get <laughs> get get an impartial party. Get someone who doesn't really even know the series that well, because like because the strengths that Covenant brings into itself with taking from Alien and 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 other films, I guess it's like those. You know, if you're watching alone, you know when I watched it alone this first time a week ago or whatever. Um, well, not the first time, you know, first time for this. I um, When the Alien music came on, the music from Jerry Goldsmith's score, a replay of Jerry Goldsmith's score, I found it to be very, to work to varying degrees of success. At certain points, it pulled me straight out of the movie and I was like, what, is, why? And then other times I was like, this is really working. This is kind of conjuring something. I love 
the sting they use for the 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 title card and with that disdainful look in david's eyes he hands him the tea um i think that really works but but what i'm getting at is when i watched it with my girlfriend i first off it, it's unbelievable what it does psychologically like i was noticing shots that i didn't even notice the movie's edited pretty quickly a lot of you know there's certain parts that linger but not many a lot of the cuts are pretty fast and there were shots that i was like i don't even remember that shot i watched this two nights ago and um and uh just things like when they come across the the alien ship the ju- the juggernaut if you want to call it that like you know now we've seen that image a few times that convention of coming across this this giger designed ship it might sort of pale in comparison in your mind and it just sort of washes over you like oh yeah we're at this point in the movie but my girlfriend doesn't really know what that ship is and she doesn't and you know she's just on this ride of you know i don't always force movies on her but recently i was like we gotta watch this movie okay you're really gonna love it it's an all-female cast and it was ingmar bergman's persona and i was like we're gonna watch persona you're gonna love it and um we watched it a little late she fell asleep so then the other night when i was like can you watch this alien movie with me? And she's like, uh, I don't know if I want to watch a movie tonight. And I was like, look, this is not a black and white <laughs> Swedish art film from the sixties. This is a sci-fi movie that came out four years ago. Like, can we, can we watch it? And she was like, okay, let's go. Let's watch it. Cause she loves sci-fi. So what I'm saying is all this stuff that sort of, to me lacked impact when I was watching it alone as the big alien fan, when I was watching it with this fresh blood, who's just taking it and I'm really taking the movie on its own terms. I was like, this is really good. And also uh, these moments are, are, are pretty sweet. They're, they're great. As for whether it's as beautiful or less beautiful visually than Prometheus, I think, you know, it has, it's less colorful kind of, but every shot in Covenant is obviously like immaculately composed and lit, maybe more uninteresting compositions overall than Prometheus. So during the whole runtime, but like, it's pretty amazing. And all the, of course the effects and the production design, like that was something she said over and over again. And another thing, just to circle back to Walter real quick, you know, there's things in a movie you can argue about, but some things just kind of, you know, of course everyone has their opinion, but when something works, it just works. And like, we weren't even 15 minutes in the movie and she was like, why is my favorite character, the robot? He's great. And I was like, Oh yeah, he's great. He's one of the best parts of the movie. And I agree. Fastbender, like, Fastbender and the production design and the notions in this movie like carry it. I think where the movie is successful is because we've all, I think most of us, if not all of us, have walked away from it appreciating the synthetics, right? Like it's their story. And so one of the reasons why I think I enjoyed it much more so the second time than the first time is because the first time I was latching on or trying to at least to the humans. I was trying to sort of, you know, latch on to what I've loved about the originals, which was the humans. I mean, not that I didn't love the synthetics I did as well, but in this, this viewing, I knew what to sort of look for. I was, I was paying attention more um, to David and Walter and their interactions and the symbolism and and the deeper meanings behind things. And and more so even to the biology of the different alien creatures themselves and less so to the humans. And when I did that, I found myself forgiving the lapses in judgment, the not so wise decisions on their part um, because 
for me, I knew it wasn't, it, it wasn't about that. I think Ridley Scott attempted to make it more about that, to win audiences back from Prometheus. But I think where the movie succeeds is those interactions with Walter and David. And anytime Walter is on the screen, I was riveted, I had to say. Not to say that I didn't enjoy the first 45 minutes with the backburster. Again, truly terrifying. But to me, the second time around, um, the with the with the spores and the, you know, the the scene where it goes into the ear and he becomes infected. I found that truly horrifying, especially post-COVID, where to me the most horrifying aspect is being infected and not knowing it. With the, with the face hugger, it's horrifying as well, but everyone's aware. And so everyone's on guard. What happened? What's going on? Is something in there? Maybe they, you know, they, they're questioning it. They're not sure. With the spores, truly terrifying because in a matter of minutes, and I don't know how long it was timeline as far as the span of the movie, but relatively quickly, it went from zero to horrifying. And I think it was a, you know, after again, post COVID, I think we were, I, it was, I was definitely more sensitive to that. Um, and I had an argument with my husband, or we both agreed actually that to me, the spores are actually the perfect organism because you don't even need the secondary. You don't need the middleman, right? It goes directly from spore to infection to backburster or throat burster and what emerged that neomorph is just primordial terror, you know, just lizard brains, you know, horrifying. I'm just going to eat and, and claw my way through everything that's alive. So I really paid attention more to the biology here. And uh, I was horrified and I was excited that I was horrified again. So I did, I appreciated that. Andy, I got to jump on that for a second. What you're saying about it, it's sort of skipping the middleman, right? With, with, a, with the life cycle of the neomorph from, from spore to backburster or whatever. Um, I think that the first time I saw it when I was in the theater, I had one of those, this is ruining my childhood moments <laughs> because it, it takes the, the classic xenomorph and makes that redundant or makes it less effective. And I was offended. I did not want my you know, ridiculous mm -hmm. life cycle. Let's just say the alien's life cycle is ridiculous. It's no, a, no, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ash. Um, and, and so, to, but, but, uh, but to see a film that is, that is billing itself as a prequel present me with something that doesn't need as many steps felt like um, a kick in the teeth. I didn't want that. And so I shut it down. And so in the more, more recent viewing, I said, okay, this just is what it is. Let's watch it. And First of all, it's from William Gibson's unproduced Alien 3 script. The idea of these little moats that go into you and make you turn into an alien straight out of his 1987 or 1988 script. So that's kind of fun. Um, it's, it is amazing. It is gross. And um, that, that whole scene is, is really, really one of the highlights. And I wish that one of the two guys, Ledward or Hallett, had done something less dumb to precipitate yes. this. I wish that, for example, if Corrine had slipped and he caught her and that's when his, fit, his foot bumped it or something, I wanted to like these guys. And I don't like either of them because one of them goes to take a smoke and the other sniffs 
something he finds on the alien planet. And so I'm in my, in my first viewing, I was immediately predisposed to be disdainful of these guys. And so I, I can't rewrite the movie, but I wish that one of them had done something either heroic or, or slightly less um, objectionable, you know, in the, in the, in the horror movie trope. Give me something that I can, I can say, okay, I could have done that. And here's what happens because Ledward in particular looks so upset. He is pained. I think he even apologizes at one point. It's a really powerful performance. Um, even before you get to the dropship, like just him being carried. I've been sick. I don't want to have anyone else have to deal with that. It's hard. So I, I do feel for the guy. And, I, and on a, a repeat viewing, I felt for him more knowing what was going to come next. I feel like in the movie, we only have five characters that impact the overall story, right? You have Daniels, Tennessee, Oram, Walter, and David, and that each of them could actually be summed up with a single adjective. Um, Daniels is mournful. Tennessee is irresponsible. Oram is irrational. Walter is subservient. And David is a... a an egomaniacal, I guess would be the term for it. And everything they do can be described by that adjective. Like if, if Tennessee could have followed the rules, you would have actually had more people survive and David would not have made it back to the ship. But because he is inherently a rule breaker, and especially in the viral videos, you, you find out that he lied about what he had done previously. He's just kind of a jerk. Um, he's so worried about his wife that he's willing to risk every other life on that ship and it's irresponsible. So I don't know. I feel like really this is a conversation about Orem because I'd like to hear your opinions about this character. I don't know what to do with Orem. Please tell me what you think of Orem, everybody. The majesty of creation lies before us now. Careful, okay? Yeah, yeah. Ours to discover. We shall behold wonders heretofore unimagined. I do want to say something quick uh, for my first impression of seeing the film. Like Andy, to your point, or what you brought up about not caring about the humans so much. I was so, in I really wanted to see that continuation of Shaw and David and their characters because through the first through the original films, it's all about a continuation of this one character and that and which was just done so well and you you really live and die with her. And so uh, that's what I kind of thought what we were gonna get a little bit. I was viewing it in that manner and when I knew that David was still a part of this story, I, I really latched onto that and and I was just so, in awe of like I loved that first five minute scene it's it's kind of like that that um Tyrell and Roy Batty moment I know I was telling Maj this but I I was just like um, I'm not familiar the, the no uh we were texting him no, stop I'm kidding. joking I'm kidding. Me. <laughs> I am uh, kidding. and uh I really love that scene because you really get an insight into like who Peter Whalen was even if it is through David's memory uh Christian but I'm just like because you don't see who the Whalen Utani Corporation, you, you see what they do to to people they don't really care about in the original films, but you're like, who is this guy that this whole company is is was built on? Um, 
was created by and so like i i loved seeing that and then just the ideas and things that david latches on to like not wanting to be subservient and not trying to be like this slave to humans and wanting to create that perfect organism is something that i feel like maybe the xenomorph at the end of covenant isn't I, I don't think it's giving us an answer to like this is how it was created it, it's one way or one thing that david manipulates obviously um but the attitude you get a glimpse into they're like showing us a glimpse of the attitude of the creature itself being a perfect organism because it can't be tamed it can't be like no one can control it no matter how hard they try no one can control it you know even in alien resurrection right like so many years later like they still can't control this thing it just goes to show like some of the mindset there that i think carries out throughout the other films whether they were thinking about that or not it's just something really powerful to me that i really loved about covenant and and david and walter that whole thing as you guys have talked about is great but orem christian to your point so so just some a couple of the things that that like brought me out of covenant when i was watching it and being such an avid fan of, of the films and and the horror and the and the and the suspense and the, and the just the thrill of the of living in that horror that we got in the um in the first three films uh, there are t timing things that don't work for me specifically in Covenant. Um, and that might be, Patrick, to your point, like things they didn't think about or did they really think about it because David is messing with an early version or, or his thing of the pathogen that it happens so fast? Like when Orm, when he does create the face sucker and brings Orm down and Orm's like, oh, let me go down in this basement with you and like see <laughs> this moist, dark basement. And David's just obviously moist. telling me the truth. Are you sure? Are you sure it's safe? <laughs> David's like, perfectly safe. Per like, go take a look. Take Like, look down. The, What's they're waiting the, for, David? Yeah, look down the barrel of the gun. It's fine. It's not loaded. <laughs> And Orem, uh, you know, obviously we all know what is going to happen. And you're like, oh, no, like the serial killer is leading him into the, you know, is going to handcuff him to the to the sink. Um, John Wayne Gacy style or whatever, you know, and uh, you finally get there. But the, the timing of it, right, like um, what's all going on in the background? They're like coming down to the they're going to get saved. They're like um, Tennessee is coming with the ship. They're like all right, everyone like gather your stuff and like meet back here in 15. And then you have Orm in the meantime, like getting face huggered and chess and like all this happens so fast, which is either because David hasn't like gotten to that final version of the pathogen or whatever happens years later, whatever you think that we're getting um, or what led up to alien. And so it just works that much more quickly. But those were moments being an avid alien fan for me that I was brought out of the film a little bit. I, I would be like, whoa, 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 wait, like, how is this happening so fast? Or like, then I would be thinking about, I was over here in my own little corner, like thinking, trying to like justify it or think about it while things are going on, you know, the first time I saw it. And not until afterwards, I was obviously able to sit in that a little bit more and think about what's really happening. But Christian, I, I think, you know, you just bring up a good point um, about these adjectives about these characters. And maybe they were 
meant to be simplistic in this manner and like follow that sort of way because David and Walter and this idea of the AI not being subservient and this like thing he's created, like he's just like, he has something to prove or whatever that is to himself or to his creator to show whoever that he's this God now is um, that's supposed to outshine. I think a lot of that other stuff, but some stuff I just thought was, it just went too quick for me. And, and yeah. And the, and just the, or I'm following David down into the basement. I was like, Oh my gosh, no one would do it. It's like in a classic horror movie. They're like, don't go there. Don't, don't go in that dark room by yourself. Michael well, to, Myers is in the closet. But that's to the it. point that's of all. Orem, I think we have to remember that there were four writers on this script, at least four writers, if not a fifth writer. I can't remember all their names. I do know Michael Green was one of them. And Patrick, you probably know the names Don of the Logan, writers. Um, uh, Dante Harper. And maybe just one more. One more, I think. I don't know. Um, but, uh, and because there were that many writers on the script, they probably had different priorities. They had different stories there. I mean, obviously, there were writers come in all the time, like Jack Paglin. Uh, yeah. And uh, for Prometheus, you had Spates, who wrote the original script. Then you had Lindelof come in and update it and change some things. You had a different set of priorities. And I think I want to get to Orem, but I think what some of the things to Patrick's question or to his point of are some of these things intentional or are they just by accident i think it depends on what writers writing what scene i think it depends on what scene we're watching i think the over the overriding sense for me is that ridley scott wanted to he had a vision that from him ai is the alien and i think he was fairly successful uh in covenant making david the alien Really, David's the biggest threat to everyone on that planet, much like Ash was the biggest threat on Alien. Um, and I think, I don't know if it fully works, but I think based off what we're talking about and things that we've been bringing up about David, it is it did work. He was really terrifying. I mean, that one scene where he's singing Monte Carlo and we're in the, in the caves and that's frightening. And he's cutting his hair and you don't know what's going through his head. With Walter we're all at ease because Walter's not going to hurt anybody. You know, with David, you don't know what's happening. But again, to pull back, this is a, a script that many people have gone through. Um, and I think some of the best scenes, and you can tell it's scene by scene where this scene is great, but what about this? This didn't make any sense. And that's what's frustrating about Covenant because there's really great things that work. And then you're like, well, what's Orem doing down there? I think Orem starts off as a great character, honestly. I think he had... He has some good dialogue. There's tension there. But much like what happens in Prometheus, but worse, they just drop his character. He, someone forgot about him. And someone forgot about him, and then he's killed in five minutes. Um, and they don't really do that with... Like, I think Orem has more is more of an interesting character to me than Daniels, who's essentially just a Ripley cipher. That's all she is to her looks, to her being a first officer. She's not much more than that. And Orem is also, again, to go back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of his adversity with, with Walter, there's some things there that we hadn't seen before. Some shades of it in Prometheus where Holloway has some issues with David and he's uncomfortable with David and they have that banter. But Orem pushes that a little bit further. Like, hey, you might be a, a droid, but I'm in charge of this ship. He wants to assert control over this droid um, that 
obviously Walter knows well you are in control. What's the problem here? Um, but it's frustrating. Orem is frustrating. And I think he's not frustrating because he's a bad character. He's frustrating because the writers forgot about him. And then he ends up being stupid. Not, and I don't think he's a stupid character to begin with. I think his, the, the conversations he's having with his wife about religion, and I think those are really great things. They just, the first movie's a different movie than the, 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 the second half of the movie. And they ha- I don't know if those things can be tied together. I, I just, they're two separate films in my opinion. So um, I have thoughts on Aurum. So you use the word frustrating. For me, I feel like he's an amalgamation of some of the best characters that we've seen in the past. And they, they, they wanted to make him interesting. So they threw some Gorman in there, you know, the one who's like, he's, he's the leader, but he doesn't, he's not quite sure. No one really wants to follow him because he's not making much sense. There's a little bit of Hicks in that he assumes the, he's reluctant, same thing. He assumes the leadership role. Um, You know, there's, they throw in discussions of faith from, I feel like that's like, Alien 3 and and a little bit of Dylan in there. Um, And then it just, he drops. Like they just drop him, like you were saying. Um, So for me, I liken Covenant to, I was watching Ratatouille recently as well with my kids. And I just, I think of that scene in the beginning where um, I think it's Linguini. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's- Yeah, Linguini like (laughs) accidentally like spills something in the soup. And then he's just trying to recreate the magic, right? He's like, oh, I think there's a little bit of salt. And he just starts shoving the ingredients in there, trying to get it back to what it was. And to me, part of Covenant feels like that. Like, we're just going to shove a little bit of this character and a little bit of this. And here's an alien and here's some spores. And here's, you know, she, like you said, Ripley, right? I mean, she's clearly meant to be the next Ripley. You know, we're we're seeing her mourn. And I feel like no one is really distinct, right? You can even say Tennessee is like a little bit of shades of Hudson, right? There's a little bit of like arrogance. And that's why none of them stick because I think they don't know what to do with them. And that's why I chose to focus on Michael Fassbender this time around. And I was rewarded for that. And mm-hmm. I chose to kind of, you know, go along with the humans, um, not really caring about them, um, just kind of going along with the ride, knowing that they were really more of a vessel to get to the more interesting, you know, underlying themes with creation and and AI and all that. So that's how I approached it. But Orem to me just feels like, let's just throw in a bunch of stuff and then Let's kill him because we we don't we don't like what we did here. That's what it seemed like to me. I think you can pinpoint the moment where Michael Green is writing. I'm going to say it's him. Orem comes into the room. He sees Rosenthal's head floating in the pool. He sees the neomorph standing in front of him. He sees David being th- being enthralled with this creature and in in communication with the creature. He points his gun at the, at the alien, he shoots it. He points his gun at David and says, I saw the devil when I was a child and I'll never forget his face. You tell me what's going on right now or I will shoot you. And then Michael Green says, okay, John Logan, you take it over from here. And Logan's <laughs> like, yes, now we go downstairs and I show you all my gothic stuff because I wrote Penny Dreadful. And, 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 and I'm okay to a point with the, the show and tell in, in David's 
you know, um, uh, scary chamber, except that why is this not making Orem more and more upset? Why is this mm-hmm. not making Orem say, you get down on your knees right now and I'm going to get someone else down here. And when they go into the sub-basement, all, it's just gone. Yeah, I don't understand what's happening. And again, not to rewrite this movie, but if David had said something like, I've invented something to stop these creatures. I've created a way to, to save us. I'll show you the thing that will prevent the tragedy. Something, give me fucking something. Yeah. There, in, the, in the audible, <laughs> the, the audible um, uh, original drama of, of Aliens, um, Sea of Sorrows? No, no, uh, um, uh, River of Pain, which is the worst of the Titan books. But the audible drama by Dirk Maggs is really, really good. And there's this moment where um, Newt's father, when he sees the egg open, goes to close the petals. He's like, I gotta close that thing up. And that's how he gets close enough to get face hugged. And that's a new original idea. And these movies need original ideas. This film in that moment, when he looks over the egg, the audience is not with this character. We're all saying, first of all, this is like the sixth alien movie. I can't believe that you're presenting this information in this manner. Give me a new idea. Give me a reason for Orem to, because people will say, well, he, of course he trusts David. He's seen, you know, David Yates all the time. He just pointed a gun at David. He just told David, you answer mm-hmm. my questions or I'm going to kill you. And we lose that. When they come down the stairs, that's to Jamie's point. It's like another writer picked up the scene and now he's excited about new things. He's excited about the chest brusher that's going to come and the face hugger that, you know, We've lost the character in that moment. And that's a tragedy because if you had presented a little bit of a nuanced moment there, give me a reason. I know what's going to happen. We all know Orem is going to get face hugged. But if you can give me a reason to believe that it happens because Kane is wearing a spacesuit and he's holding a gun when he comes up on that egg. He's not just seen his, his, his fellow shipmate get murdered. He's not seen any alien mm-hmm. life. And there certainly isn't an ominous presence telling him it's going to be okay. All of those things are warning signs, regardless of whether it's reality or a horror movie. So that's a failure in that moment. I but feel like, good. No, go go. I feel like whatever writer wrote the, um, the d- early dialogue when he was talking about his faith and how he didn't think people trusted him because of that. I think they thought that was just enough of a seed to justify him having faith that being led down to the basement was going to lead to discovery and not his demise. I think just them planting that war- one word, they use that as justification. To me, that's what that whole reason, because otherwise it's never brought up again. Yeah, It well, never we, comes into play, his, his supposed faith. There is an interesting um, interaction between him and Ferris er, way early on where Ferris says it was bad luck. And he jumps down her throat and says, I don't believe in luck. But then a heartbeat later lists faith as one of his guiding principles. And that's what I call him irrational. Like, okay, hold on. You think that luck is fake, but you believe that your faith is real. And, and it was the same problem I always had with Shaw. She's like, well, this is what I choose to believe. This is my faith. I'm like, you're not a scientist then. You can yeah. have your religion, but it must be compartmentalized. You have to use scientific method or you have to use you know, tried and true leadership methods. I don't know what, but as soon as Orem says that faith is what he's basing his decisions on, this character has alarms going off in my head, but the movie doesn't follow through on that. We're given that, like you're saying, we're given that as, oh, this guy's going to be interesting for some reason. 
then then follow through. You know, have have it be Chekhov's faith. Give you know, have that gun get fired later on in the movie. Yeah. You know, I once heard someone say around the time the movie came out that he, they brought up this moment, of course, and he said, "I." he says that line which to me uh works you know you can put that in the pile of things that work in this movie for me of i met the the devil as a child and i never forgot him that's like what the hell does that mean that is very powerful yeah. mm-hmm. especially for someone who's who's been who's admittedly devout and i heard it one uh critic at the time say i i think this was maybe him going to meet that devil again, him feeling somehow compelled on this alien planet. But the, the problem is maybe they couldn't have even conjured that moment because except for these broad strokes of irrationality or responsibility mourning, it's like most of these characters in many of the scenes are blanks when they shouldn't be. That was something Caroline kept saying as we kept watching this. Why aren't they more scared? And I was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think you're really right there. And I, and it, it was so crucial for me to watch it with her because I was like, why doesn't this movie work in its bad moments for me? Like, what is it exactly? And it's like, it's the, it's the, there isn't enough uh, authentic emotion in the right moments. And also I feel like people don't struggle enough with decisions. No one really struggles with decisions enough. Like, Tennessee's like, oh, we're taking the thing down. I understand he's the irresponsible character. Orem's the, the you know, clouded by faith uh, one. But just like even, you know, religious people struggle a lot, <laughs> I think, most of the time. It, just to see people wrestle with stuff, like even in Alien, when, you know, they had to, you know, uh, uh, Parker, you know, he had to force his hand, say, you're not going to get paid. You know, the rest of them, they're all reluctant to go down here, even on the landing, like no one's feeling really great about it. There's an ominous feeling in aliens. You know, you can always sort of feel the temperature and read the room of what the Marines are feeling and thinking. And, you know, when, you know, when the, you know, when it's getting scary and people are getting killed, like there, you know, Hudson freaking out most of the movie is crucial because otherwise, you get scenes like in certain scenes in Covenant where everyone's just sort of like la-di-da and it's like, okay, you've already, something she also pointed out and she touched on the whole uh, thing as well, Andy, about infection and transmission and how that's actually a little more potent now than when the movie came out for, you know, who knows why, but uh, they don't even know how the pathogen works. They don't know that it came through the spores or anything. So when, uh, the character, I forget her name, when she's bathing and she's like, hey, I'll see you later. Like she does the whole scream thing of like, I'll be right back. And she goes and it's like, she's washing her wounds in water. And they're just like, they're all just sort of cooling out waiting for rescue. And it's like, why, where's the, where's the fear? Where's the tension? If this, if they're not scared, even when Orem makes this decision, they talked about how they vetted this planet for a decade. They said it's going to take seven plus years to get there. This is a several decades in the making mission. And the fact that he throws it away and that the landing sequence for them, no one is apprehensive. Everyone's like, oh yeah, cool. Is it? Like it's that tone. Like it's just tonal problems. They didn't get the tone right in these certain moments and certain little inconsistencies of just emotion again, like one in one scene which I, I, again, in the pile of things that work for me is when Orem is sitting down with Daniels, Daniels is saying, I have to protest as your second officially. And he goes, officially. I, I like that scene. And, you know, she's the voice of reason, right? And then 
to flash forward to the to later in the movie tennessee is going to risk all of the colonists and she's on the radio like okay great see you soon it's like wait a minute there's like four of you left why are you excited about about you know what i mean so that was one thing that and um just uh yeah general like the level of anxiety needed to be higher in certain scenes and um and just i think things that were cut out as well like in the beginning uh jamie's talked about the the thing that ended up going in the um in this in the in the promotion in the special features etc um like even the the first scene we see orm and uh corinne in uh she says this is your crew now um you know even just on like some film grammar shit like we're on big close-ups like we don't even know who these people are yet it's kind of like it's not like oh it didn't you know it lacks emotional punch it's more just like it kind of leaves you floating of like what am i supposed to feel i don't even know who this guy is what does it mean that they're his crew now we learn that eventually and you know like but these are things that are jumping out i think well and i also think that exposition doesn't earn us doesn't no. earn the audience's allegiance just because there's an oh i'm 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 a pastor or I'm a guy of faith. Mm -hmm. That's great. But Parker and Lambert, they earned our respect. They earned their right as characters. They earned their place on that ship from us. Not because we knew their backgrounds, not because of the exposition, but because they were palpable people that felt real. And all of these things, I think, go back to the writing. And I think you have people like James Cameron who really, even, even if you hate Avatar and other films, he knows what a good character is. He knows how you have to curate a character so that the audience is emotionally invested. And that takes so much work to get characters right. And that's a hard thing to do with three or four writers. It really, really is where everyone knows, okay, from beat to beat to beat, uh, this is where this character is going. That's why you have movies like The Last Jedi, which I loved, then fall off the cliff with the next one because the the other writer had completely different intentions mm -hmm. and there was no payoff from some of these characters that we just started to invest in. And I think that's where covenant suffers the most. And when it's great, it's great, but where it needs to be not perfect. Cause I don't know if there's anything, any such Thanks. thing as perfect, but almost is the characters we need to care for, for Tennessee we need to like we need to be like no he needs to go and get her yes he needs to go and get her as opposed to no he should just stay there but if we were invested in him we would be with him right but we're not. or at least if he struggled just because yeah i mean ripley in aliens she's seeing that the marines are being slaughtered and she realizes i gotta go in there we are with her like yes mm -hmm. you do somebody's got to rescue them but in covenant we don't feel that way because there's oh, no because emotional... going in wouldn't have endanger the lives of literally thousands of colonists yeah, who were sleeping yeah. in cryopods. But we could have overlooked it to some degree if we were invested enough. And there's plenty of movies where people take big risks and they and they risk a whole hell of a lot. And it could be imminent death or the other people's lives, but they go in and we're with them because we believe in them. We just didn't believe in them. So just circling back all the way to the Orem question, I agree he's hugely problematic for all these reasons that everybody has elucidated so well. And again, it brings me back to that central question of either this was stuff that they had planned out very intentionally or it's just sort of accidental bad writing. On my sort of devil's advocate side, if thinking about this movie as something that I enjoy quite a bit. So I, as I brought up in the last episode, there's clear parallels between Orem and Gorman, right? They were both... Uh, 
you know, company staff who were not supposed to be leading a mission. And then at the last minute through strange circumstances, they ended up doing it. So if we look at it, like, you know, uh, like Jake's death in the beginning was an intentional act of sabotage by the company to put this employee that they know has that, as he tells his wife has been struggling to get promoted for years and years and years, and never has because of what he thinks is his religious beliefs. But what the company might think is actually his, you know, imbecility, uh, you know, that could be a thing like he's somebody who the company deliberately puts in charge knowing that he is the guy who will look in the egg or he's the guy who will make the decision to land or he's the guy that will put them in a lot of situations that they will intentionally you know that they will accidentally get screwed up as a result of um that's kind of how i look at it that being said though i totally agree with you that orem the writing is just terrible i think billy crudup is a great actor and i think he does a shit job with this part for some reason i think it's again the writing is just so performative and talky and expositional and weird and i think that the human characters by and large in this movie are forgettable i think there is a reason why nobody talks about any of them. There's a reason why nobody talks about Ricks and Upworth and Lope and all these people who, you know, they're, they're all these like very talented actors who are, well, some of them who are given, you know, a bunch to work with and they don't stick at all because they're just so they're just, they might as well not even be there. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me very much because I'm basically not looking at them or caring about them at all. I'm caring much more about other things in the movie that have come up, but I 100% agree with everything that everybody has said. And I think that Orem is a wonderful gateway into that issue because he's so clearly written by multiple people and he's so clearly, you know, the, the idiot that goes in the basement that the plot of the film kind of revolves around because the stakes are so high, right? If this is a recolonization mission, the company needs, if this is the point, somebody like really guaranteed to fuck up to be the one in charge of it to sabotage this whole thing. So to me, when he goes in the basement, I'm thinking that that's sort of what he's, you know, he's for one thing, he's just lost his wife. He's lost all of this other stuff. He's lost his mind, presumably and he's going into the basement because he's assuming that he will be safe for whatever reason. That being said, uh, I'm giving him tons of benefits of doubts that I don't need to as an audience member and shouldn't be doing, right? Like I shouldn't be finding all these outs for this to be able to work for me. Um, I do because I want the rest of the movie to work for me as well as it already does. And so I find all these like little moments to be like, well, it could be this and it could be that. And I think a lot of us do that with movies that we like, but um, but he, he in particular is problematic in, in many ways. One other thing, Christian, I want to come back to with the life cycle. So uh, the to me, the way that that doesn't bother me very much with the whole accelerated life cycle that we see both with the neomorph and the protomorph in this movie is, um, you know, it's the same thing as, a, you know, a fly's gestational period is a matter of hours, right? Uh, you know, a mouse's gestational period is, I presume, a matter of weeks. Like small, simple organisms tend to gestate really quickly. And I think that, you know, I mean, look at a virus, right? A virus is able to to birth and, and kill and birth again within, you know, seconds. Um, but the the xenomorph, like the actual XX121 alien that we get in the, in the film, takes a lot of time because it's a complicated organism that has a lot of functions that make it much stronger in the long run. Just like an elephant takes forever to gestate, this, this alien needed ovaries from Shaw, one would imagine, and needed a much longer life cycle to be able to, to grow into what it was. So I look at it as kind of a trade-off where obviously the, you know, the, the way that the spore functions is really quick and really effective, but because of that, it just gives birth to, to this accelerated organism that's very simple and hasn't evolved past the lizard brain. That's kind of how I, how I look at that. Um, and and I, I think that one other thing that Jamie said that I want to make sure we come back to at some point in whatever part two of this we do, presumably, is that there's a deeper evil, though, I think, underneath the evil that we see with David in this movie, who was sort of the alien in the film. 
and a deeper evil even than the company that birthed him, which is the accelerant. And so for me, it's easy to look at Covenant as an Edgar Allan Poe tale a little bit, right? It's this kind of Baroque, late romantic, uh, you know, a hodgepodge of sort of heightened horror, you know, imagery that's very overt and in your face and kind of, you know, ornate. Um, and it loses some of the Lovecraft, right? And I know, Christian, this is something that you care deeply about as well as many of us. Uh, and that's something that I find problematic to this day and, and that I, I hate when I hear people like John Logan and Ridley Scott say, this is where the alien came from, blah, 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 blah. It, it bothers me a lot because it takes away a lot of the ancient mysteries that pull me back to this series, but that doesn't take away the mystery of the, of the goo, of the accelerant. And to me, that is actually at the heart of the alien mythos. The thing that's becoming the most mysterious to me is what is this thing that has given birth to the rise and fall of civilizations over time and across star systems, right? What is this thing that's there that becomes co-opted by companies and becomes co-opted by industries and becomes co-opted by creative people or creative androids, and then ultimately eats all those things alive. So, so in a way there's a Lovecraft reading you can do to this movie if you're looking at it like that. And that I think is really fascinating and that I hope we never get any answers to at all, because there's always that mystery at the heart of that. So with that, I know we kind of have to wrap this up because it's been like two and a half hours, but it goes to show you that whenever Alien Covenant comes up, um, there's just an immense amount to talk about. And uh, so, yeah, thank you all for, for being here tonight and staying up so late. Can I throw one thing in just quick? Yeah. There is nothing more Lovecraftian mm -hmm. than the italicized ending that the reader saw coming from 10 pages ago. So <laughs> Walter being David at the very end of the movie, wink, wink, we all saw it coming. That's the most Lovecraftian ending because does the movie not know that we obviously know this is David? Anyway, I just had to throw that in there. Because and the spores, the, didn't the, like the spore pouches being sort of plant-like, uh, that sort of like struck me slightly Lovecraft a little bit. Oh, sure. There's, there's, there's a ton in this movie. It isn't, it, yeah, that's a whole conversation. Yeah. Which we'll have. Part two. I've got a list of like 40 more grievances and a bunch of things, <laughs> I, things I like. 40? No, no. Only 40? <laughs> <laughs> they were you honestly okay. to be continued. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, yeah. Well, compliment sandwich, things that are that are awesome in this movie. Walter, everyone loves Walter. The production design, the neomorph, the whole uh neomorph, 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 uh uh birthing Say sequence, which uh neil neil armstrong and burrito morph <laughs> <Perry> morph <laughs> well all i was gonna say is we call it the back bursting sequence but again watching it with an impartial party i realized that scene really starts when yeah when ledward starts like coughing it is scary from that moment because it is just dread building and then it gets this point and it that's amazing david amazing the opening scene which i like to call pete and dave awesome and uh uh one final thing is uh um yeah i don't we don't want too many answers i don't want too many answers but i will say if someone uh you know if we never had these movies and someone said uh you know the mystery of where the alien came from what if i told you that um there was it was built by an android maybe a covenant maybe a marriage of man and machine created the perfect organism and maybe that it was this uh this one deranged idi idiosyncratic you know uh uh android who fancied himself greater than his creator and was obsessed with uh the chain of creation and and what and the generations and the iterations of life and all that and he wanted to create perfection in his image and his idea I'd want to see that movie. So that's kind of, you know, I, I think that notion works. All right, everyone. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you everyone again for staying up. And we'll be back eventually with a part two. There is so much more to talk about, to love, to discuss, to loathe. Thanks again. And join our Patreon if you uh, yeah. if you are so disposed. We have some new members. We're going to read your names soon. We haven't we're overdue for that. So uh, go to perfectorganism.com/support. Join up. Tons of extra content, including an exclusive Patreon series yes. that we just recorded the first episode of that we're calling the Weirding Way, and it is an exploration of Dune in many different angles, including the very soon to release at least in North dun, America dun, dun. and some places elsewhere already released. Then even new film. Yep. So lots to look forward to. If you want to listen yeah. to that perfectorganism.com slash support. Awesome. Thanks guys. For more information on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to become a supporter, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. <laughs>